Welcome to Q&A. Today we have a very special episode, so pay close attention to episode 176 where I have a special guest interview today. How to get your products to shelves on retail stores. If you want to know all about it, make sure you listen to this episode with our very special guest, Selena Knight. This is a one hour long episode, so for those of you that have a shorter commute or are you listening while you're driving, uh, you may have to break this down on maybe a couple episodes. But this is an hour-long interview with Selena Knight where she's going to tell us how she went from being pretty much homeless at the age of 14 where her, when her mother left her all the way to having a chain of retail stores now and teaching people just like me and you how to get our own products into the, shel- to the shelves of stores, retail stores. So here we go. I'm not going to take any more of your time. So... At the age of 14, she was left by her mother who thought that being a mom was too hard. Well, some people break, others bend, and our guest is the one who bends. Instead of falling off the rails, she worked hard to do the best she could with what she had been dealt. Today, she's a multi-award winning businesswoman who has built a hugely successful chain of retail stores. This is a far cry from being homeless at 14. Ladies and gentlemen, with us today is Selena Knight. Hi, thank you so much for inviting me on the show. No problem, Selena, how are you today? I'm great, I'm great. I, I, we've already had such a great chat, so (laughs) I feel like it's, you know, I feel like I've been warmed up and I'm really ready to share some tips with your audience on how they can get their products into stores because this is one of the ways that you can grow your business. And I am all for, you know, easy, implementable things that help you grow. And that's something I'm super stoked for this because it's something that interests me. And my, my part of business is the e-commerce world and mm-hmm. not the shelves. So let's dig into that. And before, before we dig into that, let me ask you, so, your mom left you at the age of 14. How does a kid heal from that? Uh, it takes a very long time and I can't honestly say it's, it's healed. So my mom, look, looking back, you don't know this when you're a kid. Um, my mom and my dad, so my dad was actually my stepdad. They got married when I was three and I'm still very close to my, to my dad, my stepdad. And I just consider him my dad cause he's always been there, but they, they split up. And then now I look back, my mother was suffering depression. She was an alcoholic and I don't know, she had a whole bunch of stuff going on in her life that still to this day, I only know bits and pieces of, but she had four kids to three different dads. So, you know, that in itself shows that (laughs) there was obviously some problems there and Mm -hmm. potentially the people that she um, had children with weren't necessarily the best influence on her life. Um, For example, my stepdad is gay and they literally got married because they did love each other and this was back in the 80s and he really, really wanted a family and back then that was the only way and he still says to this day, I loved your mum, like that's not, that's not, you know, that's not up for question but, you know, the people she was attracted to, I guess, were not necessarily the best people for her and when I was 14, um, so I had an older brother and I have an older brother and two younger siblings and 
she was a single mum then at that point they'd split up my dad was living in his car so that he could you know help with the the finances and I guess she just broke I don't know I've I've tried to have the conversation with her and she's very much a victim so it's always everybody else's fault which I really struggle with because I believe you can make your own life like you are the only person who gets to say what happens in your life so I really struggle, <clears throat> excuse me, with that concept of it was everybody else's fault that this happened. And so when I was 14, she said, I, you know, I, can't, I can't have you anymore. And so I didn't actually have anywhere to go at that point. We were living in a different state. My dad was living in his car. Um, my grandmother had, you know, had, was not in a position to be looking after me, who, who lived nearby. My aunts and uncles were all not they weren't fit I guess you would say Mm -hmm. so there was this kind of state of limbo where I I stayed with a friend for a couple of weeks until my dad could arrange for his elderly parents in a different state to take me in Uh, but in that in itself even though the, the, the friend I stayed with was my best friend for several years that concept that your parents don't want you is very difficult to comprehend and you don't actually realize at the time you just kind of get through it right but it's all those years later, and uh, I'm not sure if you're going to edit in what we were just talking about, but that probably has something to do with my constant need for, you know, one of the things I really use my happiness for is when my students and my clients get success. So for me, I guess I, I, I take a lot of that in and, and internalise it and use that for my own happiness because I want to see people succeed. Um, but anyway, fast forward, I live with my elderly grandparents. My grandmother was very sick. So I, was, I put myself through school essentially and I finished school when I was 15 through just a whole bunch of really weird circumstances. Because I lived in a different state, when you change states, you essentially should change years as well. And that didn't happen. Plus I'd started school early because my parents were hippies and, you know, maybe smoked a little bit too gunja, too much ganja. So it was like, get the kid off to school. So through this weird set of circumstances, I actually finished, finished high school, like the whole of high school through year 12, we call it here, at when I was 15. And so then I was in this position, um, sort of just before I finished high school, my grandmother decided that they were not in a position to look after me. So they, you know, they were quite elderly. As I said, she was quite sick. She was on a ventilator and things like that. So um, my, you know, this is really weird, but my 15 year old boyfriend at the time, his, his mum took me in uh, till I finished school. So I did a lot of moving around and this makes me sound like I was a really bad kid. It was like, I was like the total opposite. I was the little nerdy kid who read my book, who went to school, who even had a part-time job you know, and I was paying my own school fees. I was paying for my own food, all that kind of stuff. I was paying rent to my, to my grandparents and to my boyfriend's mum at the time. And, but you just do it. You've got two options. You just do it and you make your life better. And I guess the other option is you fall off the rails and you end up on that other side of society where you end up taking drugs or an alcoholic or things like that. But I think because I'd seen my parents do that, there was no way that that was ever going to happen to me. So anyway, fast forward, I, you know, I had to rent an apartment at 16 and that was really difficult to convince a landlord to, to give a 16-year-old an apartment. But I had a job, like I had a fully, fully fledged job. I was, back in the day, I was earning $330 a week and all my friends were out clubbing because they were still living at home. 
I couldn't even get into the clubs <laughs> because I was only 16. But I had electricity to pay, I had food to buy, I had rent to pay, you know, I'd buy my own clothes, all that kind of stuff. So um, how do you heal from that? I, I speak to my mother a couple of times a year. That's, that's probably how I heal. I will be fully honest and say I struggle with talking to her because every time I talk to her, it's about her. Um, every conversation um, that we have, even if it's a fantastic conversation about something that, that's happened with me, then she makes it, I don't know, somehow she turns the conversation around to be about how bad her life is. And I just, I don't know, I've worked really hard to get those people out of my life. I just like being around nice, normal people without too much drama. <laughs> ah. that's, that's the story in the nutshell. Well, that, that's an amazing story. And I really love something that you said that we all, we build our own lives and our own, our own future. And you're living proof of that, right? You didn't have it easy and you are where you are now because you, you built it yourself. I mean, who, it's, easy to, it's easy to blame other people, but at the end of the day, you are responsible for every decision that you make. And, you know, the only thing you can't really blame is the weather. <laughs> you know, that's, I don't know. And even then, I still think you have options. But my, I guess the other thing to say is um, with my three siblings, two of them went one way and, and two of us went the other way. So it's, yeah, I don't know. I don't know if it's a boy girl thing, but the boys went in one direction and the girls have ended up being quite successful. Well, could have been too, just the odds. There was 50-50. 50-50. Yeah. You also moved 10 times during that period. It was that yeah. because of jobs or business? and. Um, no, I probably, looking back, I probably think it was more to do, we live in rented accommodation and I'm guessing, I don't know for a fact, but I'm guessing my parents didn't pay the rent and we probably got kicked out. Oh, fair enough. So I think I went to, uh, I tried to work it out. I think I went to eight schools, but some of them I went to more than once. So I don't know if that counts. Mm. <laughs> but what that did was just, I guess, builds that resilience of relying on yourself, which is not necessarily a good thing. I'm not saying this is a good thing because... I do find it really difficult to ask for help now. And I guess that's just completely born of having to put the faith in myself to get the next place. So many years later, like I'm in my 40s now, um, it's probably only been the last sort of three to five years that I've done that personal development that everyone talks about. And I've had to accept that these things, whilst they've made me quite resilient, have not necessarily you know, I'm not going to say turn me into the best person, but I realise I have flaws because of it. And, you know, we talked about the success. We talked about the asking for help. You know, I'll, I'll try and carry some ridiculously heavy thing rather than just saying, <clears throat> excuse me, can you give me a hand? I don't know. That's just silly, guys. Just, just ask for help. <laughs> just ask for help. It, people want to help. Like if someone asks you to help, nine times out of ten, you're more than happy. Like we get satisfaction out of giving. We're wired to, give, to get that. So think about it. This is how I try and phrase it in my head. Think about how happy someone else will be if they help you. You know, I used to think exactly like that, and I always hated to ask for help. And what changed me once was watching, it was actually a YouTube video of Steve Jobs. Mm -hmm. And he told a story about basically his story. If you don't ask, you don't get And yes. it was when he asked for some parts, he was building a little process. He was a kid. 
14, 15-year-old kid, and he asked for some parts, and I believe it was the CEO or owner of HP. And he called them on the phone and asked for those parts. And he said yes and gave him a job. And, that's and that where, was the beginning. That was his beginning. And, and then he, he told that story, and I was thinking, well, that's actually it is true. If he wouldn't have asked, he wouldn't have got it. And why be afraid to ask? It's just... What is the worst that can happen? This is what I say all the time. What is the worst that can happen? Someone says, no, you are in no different place to where you were before you asked. Yeah, absolutely. So let's get into the, to the retail. So you became... Into the good stuff. Yeah, exactly. You became a retail strategist. So can you explain before we get into this, what is a retail strategist? Okay. I don't know if it's a technical term. I just kind of made it up because I'm really good at strategy. I'm really good at looking at businesses and seeing where they should be. You know, you know sometimes record agency people say that they get like the, the tingles on the back of their neck when they listen to uh, singers and, and things yes. like that because they know they're going to be big. I kind of get that with businesses. Like I get this kind of little pitter-patter and goosebumps and all that kind of stuff because I can just, I don't know, I can just tell that they're going to be big. And I'm really good at seeing the steps that they need to take in order to get there. And I'm very much a how-to kind of person. I'm not fluffy. I'm not BS. I'm just like, guys, I don't want you to hustle. I don't know about you, Quinn, but I hate the word hustle. I've been burnt out. I've been on the floor, unable to get up. I've been in my bed for two weeks. I got mumps, which is a, you know, literally eradicated in Australia. Somehow I managed to, you know, contracted disease because I was so run down and in fact it was only just at the beginning of this year I had to take four months out of my business because I was diagnosed with stage two chronic kidney disease and looking back they could actually see and I don't know why it wasn't picked up earlier but even up till 10 years ago I was having issues with my kidneys back then and your kidneys are quite often related to stress so you know, the doctor basically said to me, you've lived your whole life under stress. Like this is, this is not a surprise. Mm. And I'm really happy to say I worked with a naturopath and as much as nobody was expecting it, um, my kidney disease is now cured. So I am now back in the normal everyday person's range, which no one was expecting. So it, what, the whole concept of hustle, it's like, really? No, you don't. People are hustling because they just don't have a plan. And if you have a plan, if you set a goal, if you focus on what you need to do, focus on taking the specific action that you need to take, you will get results. But when you don't get results is you're spending three hours on social media instead of just using an Instagram scheduler, spending an hour, banging out five posts. Like we can, I'm guilty too. Like I'm not going to say I'm the poster child, but it's easy to say we hustle because any task will fill up as much time as you give it. So the other day I had three hours in my whole day and I had this massive to-do list, including writing two articles. And usually they take me a good hour because I go and do some research and I pull some stats and things like that. So I had to write two articles. I had a client call, which goes for an hour, like that's a, that's a given. And then I had, a, oh, I don't know, about 10 other things. And somehow I managed to get all of that done in three hours because it was just focused. It was like, if I do not get this done today, I'm going to have to work tonight. Yeah. I don't want to work tonight. I want to go to yoga. So I just sat down, got my cup of tea, put the music on, got it done. And I think the hustle comes from this 
need that everybody has to be seen to be doing more than, you know, to be seen to be doing 150%. You know, yeah. 100% will get you where you want to do. 100% is done. <laughs> like, yeah. The extra is just stuff. So one of the big things, I'm, I'm very anti-hustle. I'm just, let's make a plan. Let's, ex- let's execute the plan. Let's get results. Rinse and repeat. Yeah. So much of what you said makes all, all the sense to me. Yeah. I, I relate to the hustle one and I know that people don't have time for anything until something happens like your health. Yes. And now you didn't have time to take an hour for something, but now when you find out I know, I was, problem, I was too busy. suddenly you can have four months to take care of your kidneys because now you have to. Right. It's um, and then the hustle. I think that is a. It was a fancy thing, and I know Gary V promotes a lot of the hustle, and it made it sound like it's a cool entrepreneurial mentality. It's cool to hustle, but what people don't realize is what you said, and Gary V means the same thing. You got to hustle towards a goal. If you have a goal, you know where you're going. You're not just burning time, and I'm guilty of it too. A lot of times, so busy all day. At the end of the day, you realize it didn't do. Got nothing done. (laughs) (laughs) That's why I really do believe this is. We're still not talking about the products, guys. But let's just put this in perspective. If you want to get your products into stores, okay. I've got a client who's doing this right now, and she had this exact same conversation with me. Sal, I'm so overwhelmed. I don't know what to do. I know I need a sales agent. I know I need to get my packaging finished. I know I need to post on social media. I know I need to send out EDMs. I know I have to upgrade my website because the website's not fantastic. And I know I need to like approach stockers because at the end of the day, if I don't approach the stockers, I don't have the money to do any of the other stuff. And she's, I, I, I don't know what to do. She only has five hours a day because she works while her kids are at school, but she works five days a week. She's still making some of the products. So we, she's so busy that we've moved to contract manufacturing. But some of those products, um, we probably will delete out of her product line. But in the meantime, it's not worth her getting those contract manufactured because of the quantities that she needs. So she's still using one day a week to, to create the product, to do the blending. And then, you know, for, and I, I don't know, I, maybe I was just having one of my hard-ass days, but it was like, you have five hours a day and three of those things you said, you just told me that you have to send out your newsletters and you have to do your social media posting. That should take you two hours. You should be able to bang out five social media posts and one newsletter in two hours. If you focus, in fact, I don't even think it should take two hours, but she's not very technologically advanced. So I'm going to give it two mm-hmm. hours. It's only half of one of those days. But I think what we do is we get so overwhelmed. And, and I had this just yesterday. I had a really big webinar um, thousand people registered and I had a podcast booked for 7.30 in the morning and then the, the webinar was at 10 and I do it live and I was so stressed about how I was going to fit everything in. I didn't have to do anything. Like I literally had to turn up. I know this webinar inside out. Um, I just had to do the podcast and I can do that with my eyes shut. So, but in the, I was nearly sick with nerves the night before, which is now I look back at it. It was you know, day before yesterday and I just think, why did you get yourself so you know, anxious about this whole thing? Because you literally had to do nothing other than turn up and record the podcast. And the podcast is all set up. You just had to sit down, ask the questions, go and have some breakfast. You had an hour and a half in between, come back. 
done. <laughs> so I think we get very much wrapped up in the stuff we have to do, the overwhelm that comes with the to-do list, rather than just going, let's just bang it out. Let's just get it done. What can I feasibly do in my two hours? I've only got two hours. What's on my to-do list? But what we do is we tackle the biggest thing. When actually what we should do is go, I've got five things that'll take 20 minutes. How about I just knock all those off? Yeah, sometimes the number one thing on your to-do list, <clears throat> pardon me, is just the first thing you thought of. It doesn't mean it's the most important one. Yes, and yes. Also, I, I tend to outsource a bit when if it's little tasks that I can out, just outsource to somebody. I am the queen of outsource. <laughs> you do not, guys, you do not be need to be loading products up onto your website. There is someone on Fiverr who has a machine program that will do that for you, will do a hundred of them, for five or 10 bucks. Like you do not need to be doing this stuff yourself. Absolutely, absolutely. Just one extra, I, I talked to AVA once and I asked her, I had 400 listings that I had to, to work on and upload and I, I created the job and I offered this, awarded the job to this VA and she she told me if you get me this uh, software, it was nine ninety nine US dollars. Nine hundred ninety nine or nine dollars. Nine dollars, nine dollars. It was a monthly membership. Yes. She said, you ju if you buy this, this was uh, I had programmed for a forty hour a week one month job, mm -hmm. and she said if you buy me this software, I can have it done today. <laughs> Oh, love it. And this is the thing, resizing images. I really want to get onto the good stuff, but yeah. resizing images. Let's put this in perspective. Um, one of the things I'm going to tell you is that in order to get your products into stores, you need to have a gallery of images. And your, your retailers are going to want everything from 400 by 400, 1200 by 1200, full to all the way through to print ready high-res um, high images if they want to use that for point of sale. So having those, you, know, you get the big photo. There are literally, again, people on Fiverr, Upwork, wherever you want to go, who have a program that will go take this picture, make it 1,200 by 1,200, 600 by 600, 400 by 400, and they'll even put it in really pretty folders for you. And all they're doing is going copy and paste. You, on the other hand, are paying for Photoshop or doing it in Canva or something, loading it up, looking at the size, trying to crop it, all this, just give somebody else that job because yeah. they're probably going to be doing a much better job. And in the meantime, you could be calling a stockist to see if you could get your product on the shelf. And you can, yeah, exactly, do something else. <laughs> so to get on the shelves, let's start, starting from the beginning, okay. how would we go about finding the retailers? Okay. In all my years of business, I have over a decade in retail, and in that time, not only did I have online and offline, but I also created our own product ranges. So I feel like I've got some insight here as to what the retailer is looking for, but also what you need to do as a wholesaler in order to get your product on the shelf. So here's the, here's the things that you need to think of. And Quinn, I'll put all this into a download for you. So if people are listening, they don't have to take any notes. I'll put it all in a download for you. First awesome. of all, your product has to suit their ideal customer. So you need to look, you know, this is the biggest thing that I see. The biggest mistake is you go and outsource someone to give you a list of people that you can approach, but you don't even look at their website. 
And you really are going to piss them off if you ring up. So I had an eco-friendly baby store and we would get people ringing up with disposable products. I'd be like, you didn't even look at what we sell. And that just, you've turned me off straight away. So think about who they're selling to and does your product actually suit their customer? Because they're going to ask you that question. And maybe you've got something a little bit quirky, a little bit different, but you need to know or you need to tell them why this product would work for their customer. So when you're thinking about that, it also has to work well with their current product mix. So don't try and sell me a card game if I sell baby products. You know, it's it's not going to work. But you could sell me a card game if I maybe had a homeware store because people could see how that could work. So what you're offering has to work well with their current product mix. Suitably, if they're a luxury store, and your product is $9.99, they're probably not going to want it because it's not going to fit with what you know, the image that they're trying to portray and what their customer is looking for. But by saying all of that, they also are always looking for something that's different. So what is the thing, what is the hook about your product that you can use for the retailer to say, wow, we don't have that, or I could see how I could sell that with that. I could see you know, my best customer is Jane. Would Jane like this? And this is, this is what I say as a retailer to my retailers is think about that customer that comes in every week and spends or comes back to your website and spends hundreds of dollars. Would they buy this thing? And if the answer is yes, fantastic. You've got a winner. Of course, it's got to have a good margin. We're not going to take something on as a retailer if we can't make any money. And by the same token, it has to be easily saleable. So if you have a product that has 400 gadget bits that need to be pressed to do something. And my sales associate has to spend half an hour with someone explaining why they need this thing. Mm-hmm. I'm probably not going to take it on board unless I'm going to make a really good lot of money. And you have something there that I can use to persuade the customer. Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. Like, I'm thinking about electrical things at the moment, but I know that there are like a lot of people with organic products they tell you all these things and you're like, but you've got a sales associate with 15,000 SKUs. They, they're not going to remember that. You've got to put it on the packaging. If you want them to know this stuff, you've got to put it on the packaging. And it, you need to be able to fulfill their orders when they need them. So one of my clients, the one I was just telling you about before, she really, really wanted to be stopped by this really strict cruelty-free store. Like that was her goal. She tried a couple of times and they'd knocked her back. And when we started working together, I said to her, so I know this company and I know other people who have gotten orders from this company. When they order a thousand units every couple of weeks, can you actually fulfill that? Because if you can't, you cannot submit your product to them. And she was like, well, I can't, I can't do a couple of thousand at this point in time. Like she was still making, making herself. And I said, well, you can't go to them until you have all of this stuff ready for them. And in fact, one of the reasons that she had been rejected in the past, coming back to the photos, was they weren't happy with her photos. So she had, you know, she'd taken the photos herself. So she had to go off and get those photos done professionally. And then it was a much easier sell. Um, by the same token, her packaging was not very good. Her, it was very, it looked very homemade. And this was a very, very much a catering to a market of people who are prepared to pay $200 for some eye cream stuff. So mm-hmm. you have to be able to fulfill the order and you also have to be able to turn it around 
So I don't want to be ordering from you. And then you're going to take six weeks because you're bringing it in from China because you're running a just-in-time model. That happens once and I'm never going to order from you again. And then the last thing that you really need to think about if it's a physical store is, is it going to sit well on their shelves? And by that, I mean, is it going to look nice? Like if you can go into one of the stores and see where would you see your product fitting here? Is it going to be a POS display at the counter? Is it going to be um, on the shelf? Is it going to hang? All those kinds of things. So you need to know all of this because if you know the answers to all these questions, and remember, I'm going to have all this in a download for you, you are going to get a yes way easier than if you don't put all that information in up front. And then talking about packaging to be on the shelf, mm-hmm. is there certain things that are mandatory to, to have on the packaging? Uh, depending on which criteria you're in, like you generally have to have all the gre- ingredients. Obviously, it depends which country, but you have to have the ingredients. You have to have used by dates if that's the case. You, um, you may have to have like your contact information. But most retailers would like a barcode. But if you're selling a product already, there's a good chance you're going to have a barcode and a lot of point of sale systems. So if we're talking physical stores, a lot of point of sale systems will already have their own, they have the ability to generate a barcode. So barcode's great. I wouldn't use, if you don't have a barcode on your product, I wouldn't let that stop you trying to get your product into a store because if they say yes, you can spend a hundred bucks and go and buy one. So don't, Again, by the, say, by the same, using that same philosophy earlier, it's really easy to procrastinate. It's really easy to find every excuse under the sun. And that this client that I'm telling you about is, hers was packaging. So when we redid her branding, then she wanted boxes for everything. So she wouldn't approach any stockers because she didn't feel that if she didn't have the boxes, they wouldn't buy it. So it's really easy to stay in the comfortable zone of my product's not ready, but you aren't going to make any money if people can't see it and they can't buy it. So put yourself out there, move into uncomfortable because what's the worst that could happen? They say no. What happens there when they do say no? So uh, I would ask them why. I would just say, fantastic. So two things. First one is, um, could I ask you for your feedback as to why? Is it, you, you could even put some things forward. You could say, you know, is it because you don't feel that your customers would align with it? But you want to know the answer. I feel that if someone says no, you most definitely, and don't say why, like really snarky, just say, I would love some feedback on why you think this wouldn't fit, just so that we can tweak it in the future when we're approaching other stores. Nice. That's nice. That's, you know, you're not make, I'm not feeling bad because I'm saying no. I maybe really didn't like your photos. And it wasn't until this, this client I was telling you about actually asked that company, what is it you don't like? And they said, we don't like your photos. But she thought she had great photos. I didn't think she had great photos, but she thought she had great photos. And she said it was really difficult. We also did a little interview where she was at a, a, an organic market and this, this couple tried her product, the skincare product on, and the husband really loved it. And, and it's not cheap, you know, because it's all, very, it's all organic and cruelty-free and small batch, all that kind of stuff. And he said, to her, I really love your product, but there is no way in hell I'm sticking that on my bathroom shelf. The bottle is too ugly. And she said, that gutted me. Like I nearly, you know, nearly gave the whole thing up because of it. But she said, you know, after you get over the initial shock, it's like, now that I looked at it, now she looks at it from her new branding and she goes, oh my God, what was I thinking? <laughs> but take that feedback on board. Like, don't just, don't get into this blame mentality of, 
you know, they just didn't want any product. Um, maybe they do have something really constructive to tell you and take that on board and go, right, if they don't like my packaging, if they don't think it's a product, if they don't think it's going to fit for their clients, how did I get that wrong? What could I take away from that and go, okay, if, if they feel it didn't fit, are these other people on my list? Should I reassess those now? Yeah, that's a very good point. Should get point of view of maybe somebody uh, of your potential client. I have a case yeah. of one of the products I created was a swaddle blanket, a baby blanket. Yep. And I bought a lot I, of those in my time. <laughs> I had the best packaging ever. And I, I always thought it was like mine is the best ever. And I, I had one swaddle blanket in each package and when it went to market in the US and Canada, sorry, started in the US only and it wasn't selling. It wasn't selling at all. Because so, nobody buys one. Exactly. Is that going to be the answer? <laughs> it is. It is. I talked to my wife after the, I, I consider the product a failure and I told her, well, you know what? Uh, well, we have twins now, so we could use a ton of those anyway. And I told her, and she said, "Honey, I wouldn't buy it either." No, uh, I, I need three. Yeah, I need at least three or four per day. What am I going to do with that? And I'm like, oh, she was the expert. She was the the client. Yes, right? yes. And, and you, know, even if you, I remember back when I first started, there was this lovely gentleman who has gone on to be a raving success, and he literally turned up on the doorstep of the shop with these beautiful wooden toys. And he was asking my feedback. He's like, you are the store I want to sell my toys to. This is my product range. You know, this is what I want to sell them for. This is what it's going to cost me. Would you buy them? And for years on, like he ended up becoming a huge manufacturer, all ethically made wooden toys, you know, just a lovely business all in all. They ended up distributing lots of, lots of things. But he was prepared to go out there and say, what do you think they should sell for? And in fact, I actually thought they should sell for more than what he was prepared to sell for. In fact, we actually did sell many of his products above recommended retail. Nice. So how does that work? If I have my product and I want to put it on the shelf, uh, you as a retailer, do you tell me I need it to be within this range? How does that work? Uh, no, I think it's up to you to tell me why I should have the product. So a couple of things to think about before you even approach. So I think two schools of thought, hit, You know, we, we kind of work in, two different ways. One is we just go gung-ho and approach everybody. And the other one is we use this idea of not, um, you know, not doing anything because, <laughs> because we're worried about, you know, where, where we might end up. And if somebody doesn't like it, the words, the worst thing in the world can happen. Um, but I think there are a few things that you really need to look at before you even start. So first, you know, I'll just, as I said, I'm going to write all this down for you. But the first thing is to make sure you've got insurance. Yes. So if you are the product manufacturer or even the product importer, you are the liable distributor, vendor, manufacturer. So you've got to make sure you've got your public liability, sorry, your products liability insurance. You're going to have to be registered for tax because people want their tax input credits. Those retailers want to be able to get all the credits they can. And really think about as much as it's going to pain you, your account terms, you let people pay pro forma for the first couple of orders, but there aren't many retailers who aren't going to want trade terms. And then also look at how is that retailer going to order from you? You know, do you expect them to email it to you? 
you know, most retailers are going to want to set a purchase order. So when they send that purchase order to you, how are you going to deal with the fact that products might be out of stock? You know, really think about these things, which I know you can kind of deal with them as they come, but at least give them some thought. So if it all goes pear-shaped, you've got some concept of how to deal with it. Yeah. Um, and then for me, uh, we talked about the product shots. So, you know, insurance and product shots are probably my top two. But the last one is just to have some kind of marketing plan. And it does not have to be some fully-fledged great big thing on the wall. But as a retailer, if you are giving me the opportunity to promote your products and maybe you might do some exclusive deals. So um, you, know, you might say, hey, we're happy to work. You just have to say, we are happy to work with you to create exclusive deals. Like even that in itself is going to give you something different. But if you're going to have sales throughout the year, you know, making sure that you know that your suppliers, you know, your retailers are going to get first access so that they can do it because there becomes very much an us and them. If you are selling this product yourself and you're selling it in retail stores and you're offering free shipping, for example, but you're not offering free shipping to the retailer. So they can't pass that on. You don't want that animosity there. Like remember at the end of the day, the retailer is like an agent for you. They are putting your product in front of tens, hundreds of thousands of your ideal client. How much money would it cost you to do that yourself? So you, they're your best friend. You can't upset them. They're doing, they're doing all the work for you. You literally just ship the product out. So by encompassing each retailer or even having a marketing plan in place and just saying, if, even if you, like I'm saying, it doesn't have to be fancy. It could just say a couple of times a year, you know, in the lead up to spring and summer, we tend to go on sale. We'll give you access to those discounts two weeks in advance so that you can put it in because the retailer is going to have a marketing plan as well. And you need to know what that looks like for them. They might need six weeks because they're so far ahead. They might do print advertising. So really, if you want to be the, the ultimate supplier, the ultimate distributor, the ultimate manufacturer, is you know, even keeping like a little bit of a CRM of what different stores need and then also knowing which one of those stores you should be loving the bejesus out of. If, you know, if they're ordering thousands of stuff thousands of products, thousands of SKUs, thousands of units every single week or month. What are you doing to make them feel like they are the best people in the world? Even if you just said to them, you are our number one retailer, that in itself, they, you know, it doesn't have to be a monetary thing, but really doing that, recognizing that these people are paying your bills. If they stop buying your product, it's really hard slog to be doing it all yourself again. Does that make sense? Yes, it does. And now a question for you about the size of the retailer. Do you mm -hmm. advise people that are starting out and they have never been on the shelf anywhere? Should they approach the big chains? Should they go through after the franchise or the small mom and pop shop? So most big box stores won't take your product without runs on the shelves. So they need to know that there's proof of concept. They're probably going to ask you how many units you're already selling, which maybe you're selling it on Amazon. Maybe you're selling 10,000 units a month, but they need to know that it's, it's already a product that works. But here's the thing. Most big box stores will make you discount. So if they want a 50% margin, hundred percent markup, so your product, you're going to sell it to them for 10 and they're going to sell it for 20. Target is going to want it for seven to sell for 16. 
So can you actually facilitate that, you know, that the decrease in your own margin? Because to sell it to target for seven, you probably need to be buying it in at two or three. By the time you, you know, you've got to pay your insurance, you've got to do your freight, all that kind of stuff. You've got to make some money out of this thing as well. You've got an advertising budget. And I think a lot of the times when people work out their cost of goods, they tend to forget things like shipping. They forget their tariffs if they have to pay it. They forget the shipping to the customer if they're giving the customer free shipping and Target is not going to pay you for shipping. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's We're talking logistics now in terms of we're not talking about shipping. That's logistics. They're wanting pallets and pallets of stuff. So how are you going to pay for that? You know, Where do they want it sent to? Is it going to five distribution warehouses all around the country? Is it going to one? So all of those things are going to affect that margin that you get. And a lot of people get so focused on getting their product into a big box store and then make no money. And here's the thing. If a big box store discounts your product, they don't suffer any loss. They take the discount off, your, off the buy price from you. Yeah. So if you sold it for seven and they wanted to sell it for 16 and they sell it for 10, that $6 is coming off what they paid you. <laughs> so you might end up with a dollar. Now, all of this obviously can be negotiated, but at the end of the day, the big box retailer is not necessarily your friend if you don't have something that you can get high output for, or alternatively, you're extremely bespoke. So, for example, um, a, bridal, a bridal accessory maker, that couture type thing, uh, maybe you might get into a really high end, like a Nordstrom, but you know you only have to fulfill 1,500 units because it's a really high end product um, that not a lot of people are going to buy. So understanding what that looks like, but also not putting all your eggs in one basket. So I know of, I know of someone who did get a target deal, but if they lose target, they kind of lose the business, if that makes sense, because they, they did that. They went, we want the big box store. We don't want the mom and pop stores. But then you've got no one. And Target can drop you like that. If your product is on the shelf for four weeks and they don't sell what they wanted, they might just ship it all back to you and say, sorry, we want our money back kind of thing, or we're not paying the end of our invoice, whatever it looks like. So don't put your eggs all in one basket. And I appreciate that having that deal that might mean 30 or 100,000 units a month to Target might mean being in 500 mom and pop stores. But where are you if that product doesn't work? And I don't ever want you to be in that position, <laughs> ever. So the ideal will be then uh, not have your eggs all in the same basket. Go to all the mom and pop shops where you can get a bigger margin and make some profit, proof of, yes. com proof of concept, concept, and then just go to uh, then search the big one if you're willing to. At that if point. you're willing to, and you have to be able to, you know, this is not going to work if you're doing just-in-time production. So if you are literally, you know, ordering the minimum order quantity and then you're doing that every four weeks just so you don't have to sit on inventory, that's not going to work if you're selling into one of the big box stores. But, you know, you need to do the omni-channel retail, and I know we think about that as being online and offline, but have your own website. Be on eBay if that or Craigslist. Be on Amazon, be on your own website, always have your own website. And then look at these other channels as well. Use your influencers, do all of those things, but don't get distracted by having, you know, I have to have 50 different streams of income. 
focus on the ones that are going to be consistent, you know, almost recurring revenue that will keep your business afloat if everything else goes pear-shaped. For now, that you know, that's what I would focus on. And I've seen businesses spend two years on a deal to get into a big box store at the expense of everywhere else because those some some brands will want exclusivity. So what do you do for those two years? You just sit there and hope that <laughs> they're going to take your product. I don't know. I like to make money. I don't know about you. I'm not in this. <laughs> I'm not in this retail thing to not make money. Yeah, no. hope hope doesn't pay the rent. <laughs> hope does not pay the mortgage. No. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, I think one of the other things that people really need to think about when they're selling a product is how easily is it shippable, and in this day and age. Um, and that, that toy manufacturer I was talking to you about, he had this really beautiful uh, baby gym, you know, kind of like an A-frame thing that you hangs the, the little mobiles off. Yes. But the problem with, what, with it here in Australia was we have satchels to send our postage out in, like, um, like USPS type satchels. And it didn't fit in the satchel it needed to. It was about, about an inch too long to fit in that satchel. So then it had to move to the next one. So as a retailer... We actually stopped buying, we didn't stop buying the product, but we stopped shipping, you know, it wasn't available online because the cost to ship it was not recoupable. So instead of being sort of $15 to ship, it went into the $30 to ship and the product only cost $60 and no one was going to pay $30 to ship it. So think about that when you're, you know, how is your retailer going to ship out? Are they going to ship in boxes? And I know you may not know the answer to this, but generally speaking, if they're using like a USPS satchel or a FedEx satchel or however it looks like, will your product fit in that thing? Like this sounds so basic, but so many people overlook it. And this may be the thing that brings your product undone. So the retailer gets it, they start getting a whole bunch of orders and they can't ship it. Maybe it's oversized, it's overweight, you know, maybe, you know, it could be loads of different things. So is the product shippable, easily shippable? And also, does it need packaging? Like if I, had a, if I had a choice, nothing would have packaging. But as a retailer, if you're selling me some really strange shaped thing that is not going to stand up on a shelf, it's not going to work on hang cell because you haven't given me any hang cell packaging, what the freaking heck am I supposed to do with it? Like stick it in a basket? And this is where you see those, you know, especially mom and pop stores where they've got stuff in a basket on, on the shelves, uh, sorry, on the counter because... They haven't been given an easy way to sell it. And as a consumer, it really brings your brand down. So as much as I hate to, as, as I hate packaging, packaging will sell your product. And packaging will also sell your product more if it has the information that the customer needs all in one spot. So if you have a product that needs instructions, if it, yeah, we're not talking necessarily we're talking clothing, but even clothing on a tag, say it's reversible, you know, have a picture of both sides. Because the sales associate can't remember everything about every SKU. So what can you do to make your product as saleable as possible when it's sitting, hopefully sitting or hanging on a shelf? That's such a great point that a lot of people forget. If you're going to be on a shelf, you have to fit on that shelf or be able you to have stand. You on the shelf, yes. Yeah, and, and by all means, that's, that's really good. We didn't talk about that, but you have to fit on the shelf. So if you have something that's really tall and, you know, the average – the average shelf might be 12 inches. Go, in, go into a retail store that you're looking to be in and have a look at how they merchandise. Because if your thing is so big, it's not going to fit on a shelf. 
Maybe it needs to be a longer package rather than a taller package. Maybe you just need to flip the design around so that the printing is slightly different. Mm -hmm. But the more difficult you make it for a retailer to put it on the shelf and to sell, the less likely they are to buy and the more likely they are to direct their customers to your competition. Yeah, just make it too easy for them to say no. You got it. You make it as easy as possible. And remember, when you're doing all of this stuff, have a bit of a mantra. People are dumb. <laughs> People are dumb. If it's online, they're going to email you and ask you how much shipping is, despite the fact it says free shipping. Or they could just click on the tab that says shipping. If you're in store and it has three pieces, make sure you say contains three pieces because even though you say it, people are dumb. I don't, that's my mantra. When mm -hmm. you're designing, people are dumb. <laughs> How can you make this as obvious as possible? Yeah, there's also another point is that people, they just look at what they want. They see, they see the titles. And I, I did a test on Amazon and it was a, a short period test. And you know how Amazon has the title and then there's yeah. five bullet points. On the fifth bullet point, I wrote as a test, and a few of us had Amazon sellers talked about this, and I wrote, if you can see this, contact me, the product is free. Nobody. How many? Nobody. No. no. And Do we I read past two? I don't think we read past two. No, I, I think it's the first two. It's the, even the title. People don't, re don't read the whole title. The first keywords right at the beginning. Then they look at the pictures. And, right, and then the pictures are on Amazon what makes you sell the product. Yes. If they look at the pictures and, and then the reviews show that there's at least four, four and a half stars, yeah, people will buy if your photos look good. Uh, any, it, any online retailer is going to be exactly the same. They will give your product preference if it looks good. Yeah. They'll put you on the homepage. If you, give, if you give them some fantastic lifestyle images, you've just made their life easy. We'll put you on the homepage. One more thing about being on the shelves about warranty. Mm -hmm. Is there a certain minimum warranty that a retailer wants? So not necessarily, I mean, you... You're legally obliged to give a warranty. In most cases, it's 12 months. Uh, if, this, if this is a feature, if you can give a lifetime warranty. So we actually had a product that had a lifetime warranty and we were the only people who offered it for this product. So this was a product we were manufacturing and then wholesaling to other, product, other people because we worked out that our failure rate was so small that absorbing that cost, and to be honest, most people only use the product for two years. Mm -hmm. By then, they'd grown out of it. So... Um, if the product failed, the return rate was so low that the couple of dollars it cost us to replace it got us so many more sales because we were the only people on the market who had that guarantee. Nice. Like a lifetime guarantee. So it's, you know, have a think about those sorts of things. And as a retailer, if someone else is not promoting that, but you have an extended warranty or you have a lifetime guarantee, it's going to make me think about selling your product over and above everybody else's because I know that this is not my problem. If it breaks, you're going to fix it. I don't have to worry about that person coming back two years from now complaining that it broke. You already have told me that it's, it's not my issue. You're going to fix it. And when it comes to food products or things that go in or on the human body, 
does the retailer look for special um, certificates, special licenses, you know, like FDA approvals and that kind of stuff? Yeah, so I think you have to be mindful of the retailer that you're looking to get into. So if you, you can command a premium when you have certain things. If you are organic, you're going to command a premium. If you're certified vegan, you're going to command a premium. If you're certified cruelty-free, and all these things cost money. And they're, you know, they're quite strict, but we're not talking a lot of money. So some of them might be a few hundred dollars. You know, maybe you want USA made or Australia made. Mm-hmm. To get that, you need a certain thing. Uh, you, know, you need to submit the application and you have to pay the fee. But those ticks, you know, the healthy food tick, all those things are going to make your product more saleable and more enticeable. Like a customer is going to choose you as long as you promoted it on your packaging um, or you tell me on the bottle because customers want that security when they buy a product. And by the same token, the retailers want that as well. So there's a lot to think about when you're going into retail. And as I said, by no means you use these as excuses not to start trying because if you've got the bare bones and you're willing to get a retailer how, and, you know, sorry, a retailer is willing to take you on. How much more excited are they going to be about your product when you come back with awesome product shots, when you come back with that marketing plan? You don't, don't, don't use this safe, secure zone of, you know, <laughs> nobody's got my product to stop from moving to the next level. But so we, there's kind of three steps, right? We went through the first step, which was getting your, getting your wholesale house in order, like getting the stuff that you need ready to approach. And then the second step was just making sure that you know what the supplier is looking for. So again, it's kind of a pre, there's more work in the pre than into the actual approach. But when it comes to actually approaching the retailer, you have to do your research. How do they want your product submitted? Because anyone who's good is going to probably have a page on their website because they get so many of these every single week Mm -hmm. that says, fill out this form, tell us about your product. If we think it's going to be a fit, we'll get back to you. If you don't hear from us, um, you're more than welcome to follow up. Or if you don't hear from us, we don't think it's a good fit. So there's nothing worse as a retailer than having that on your website and then someone turning up in your store saying, can I sell you this stuff? It's like immediately you've you've impinged on my time, but you also were not respectful that we have a process in our store Um, because the person who's on the floor may have nothing to do with the buying. And you've just wasted their time. So as a retailer, I'm like, you just took my, that, that person should have been selling. So make sure you research how they want the product submitted. And yeah, I always recommend calling and just asking them, are they taking new product on at the moment? You don't have to tell them. Just say, I'm just ringing to see before I waste your time, are you taking any new products on any new ranges on at the time? Because maybe they just went to a trade show and the answer is no. And if they say no, mark them down to call back again in six weeks. So don't ever take no for an answer. <laughs> um, when you also cold call, make sure you ask to speak to the buyer because if you've called the store, again, you probably will get the sales associate. They can't help you. And always try and pin down a time. So if you ring them up and say, you know, can I speak to the buyer? And they say, you know, she's only here on Tuesdays. Just say, fantastic. Is it possible for me to call at 10 on Tuesday? You put the time out the front. And they're either going to say, I'll grab the diary and have a look or they're going to say, I'm not sure I can leave a message. But even if that message goes through, it says that you want to talk to her at 10 o'clock on Tuesday. So she knows, he or she knows straight up front whether they're either going to come back and say, I can't do 10, but I can do 12 or I can't do Wednesday. I can do Thursday. 
but you, you've, you've shown them that you're not going to waste their time because time is money in retail. Um, if they still won't give you the buyer's details, you, you can't take no for an answer. Like, honestly, that's, that's another mantra you have to have. Mm-hmm. It's probably going to take several calls for you to get the person that you need to speak to. Just keep doing it. Because be honest, if someone calls me six times in six weeks, I'll probably do one of two things. I'll either tell them that I've looked at the product and I'm not interested, or two, I think, oh, my God, if they are this determined, (laughs) then I probably should look at the product. And then that whole when no means no is it is so easy to take to heart when somebody says they don't want your product. But take ask for that constructive criticism, that constructive feedback. Take that on board. Maybe you do need to change a few things. But at the end of the day, unless they've specifically said, we do not think your product is right and you won't change the things that they didn't like, I would be calling them again in six weeks because you never know. Maybe in the meantime, 25 people have come into the store and asked for that thing that you were going to sell. And then you just happen to call up and they say, right, yes, we actually, we've had a lot of people asking for that. Uh, that's the Red Bull story. Do you know the Red Bull story? No, I don't. About how, so Red Bull, the energy drink, that was their guerrilla marketing tactic. They wanted to get into uh, the grocery stores, but no one would take their product because you know, who needs an energy drink? So they actually started to get all these people calling up stores asking if they stocked Red Bull. And they just got hundreds of people to call hundreds of stores asking if they stocked Red Bull. And when all these queries started to come in, then the grocery stores were like, maybe we need this Red Bull thing. <laughs> That's such a great technique. No. Um, yeah, so I think those are kind of the biggest things is you know, get yourself in order, do your research, do the approach, and don't necessarily take no for a no. So what if I do get your attention and you tell me show up Tuesday at noon? When I show up Tuesday at noon, what should I have with me? Should I take the product and instructions and everything or – um, I think you should take the products. You're probably going to have a range most of the time. So take the products that most fit, but also grab that download I'm going to give you and make sure you have all those other things written out. So you're going to have to have a line sheet. So a line sheet is literally just a picture of the product, the wholesale price, the recommended retail price or the minimum sale price. Um, and then you could, you know, if you've got any bonuses. So you literally have a sheet with all the images on it and the pricing, maybe a minimum order quantity or, you know, comes in boxes of six, whatever the customer needs to know. So they can have that on hand. Um, I always take an order form, always try and secure an order. So even if they're going to send you a purchase order, always, you know, try and take an order on the spot, even if it's, you know, even if it's just the fact that they then have to send you a purchase order, that's okay. Because you can email it back to them and say, this is what I'm going to do and here's an offer. One of the best things I like if you've got a decent range, so coming back to my client with the natural skincare, I think she has 40 products in her range, but 10 of them are really well, good sellers that, you know, over and over again, tried and tried and true. So we actually put together two packs, two introductory sort of starter packs together, which was those 10 best selling products. Um, I think we did six products in one and 10 in the other. So we had two price points. Knowing what the minimum order is, what is the minimum order that you're going to accept? And don't make it zero. Um, Sort of 300 is a nice one that most retailers would be okay with. It depends on your price point, obviously. If you've got a really low-value product, maybe it's going to be $100. Maybe if you've got a $2 product. Mm -hmm. But $300 is a nice amount to make it worth your time 
and to know that they're committed. Because the other thing is, if someone only orders five of them, there's a thing on, I don't know, there's this thing, there's this Murphy's Law that is you need to have the product on the shelf for it to sell. And the minute you get to one or two, people just don't buy it. I don't know what it is. Every independent retailer will tell you as soon as there is one on the shelf, nobody wants to buy it. So if they only have two of 12, you know, say you've got 12 things in the range and they buy two of everything, it's not going to look good on the shelf. I would much rather they take four units of three things. And this is where I think um, it's quite important to think about maybe you want to go in there saying that the, they come in a box of six, even if they don't come in a box of six, or they come in a box of three or four or five, so that when they order, you know that there's going to be a minimum of three on the shelf or four or five or six or ten. Yeah. Um, it also makes packing really easy. So if your product does come in a box of ten, make it a box of ten because then you just pick that box up and put it in their box. Uh, but, but more importantly for me, it's to make sure that your product is well represented on the shelves because if there's just one of everything, it's, it's not going to sell. So if I set a MOQ or a minimum order quantity of 100 units or 50 units, mm-hmm. um, does the retailer expect or prefer if I have free shipping to them? Everybody loves free shipping. Like I won't deny that. But shipping is expensive. So you really need to think about um, how you're going to facilitate that and how much it impacts on your margin because shipping down the road is going to be cheaper than shipping to the other side of the country. So what is the worst case scenario for your shipping and can you absorb that? The other thing to think about is maybe you've got a really high margin product. So maybe there's one that you've just got 900% on it. Like, you know, it's just one of these things. It sells well. It doesn't cost a lot. It just works really, really well. So you could do an offer that was, you know, if you buy $500 plus 10 of these, then we offer you free shipping because you know the margins in there. Yeah. You need to know what it costs to sell the product first. So free shipping is great. But what I prefer, so from the retailer's side, free shipping is great. But from the product creator's side, and what I would tell you as your business coach is I would rather you offer them free product because it might cost you $50 to ship it. But for that same $50, you might be able to give them 10 units of something, which for them is worth way more. So say we, you know, we sell we sell it to them. We can give them. We can give them ten of them because they're five dollars. But they might sell them for twelve ninety five, and now they've got one hundred and twenty dollars worth of value for free. That's a great that, point. Yeah, very good point. And, and it doesn't cut, it doesn't cut into your margin. Yeah, shipping is a direct margin cutter. Selling them product is only the amount that it costs you. So it's so significantly smaller than the actual cost of the shipping. And not only that. They have more products, so they can use it for a giveaway. So one of the things we do with my product creators is when someone does one of those new orders, obviously we give them a bit of a discount because it's a starter pack. But then we also say, you know, if you order within the next 48 hours, we will give you five of these things worth of $120. You can choose to give them away to your best customers. You could run a giveaway. You could just sell them and take the money. But now we've got a marketing plan, right? Now it's like, oh, hold on. I can either take my money or I could give them to some influencers or I could give them to my best customers to do some reviews with. Um, but now you're giving me a way of promoting your product for 
a couple of bucks. And when it comes to refunds or returns, use the same technique instead of deducting the price of the product, you just replace it with a new one. Yeah. So that's what we would generally say. You have to make sure you have your terms and conditions in place. Um, how are you going to deal with refunds and returns? But generally speaking, I would always say replace and really think about um, what it's worth. So people get so caught up. We get so personally attached to the products that we create, but if it's going to cost more to ship it back to you to prove that it's broken, you know, are you going to be happy with the supplier sending you a photo? Because you're going to have to pay to ship it back to you and then you're going to have to pay to ship a replacement back to the store. Yeah. That's a lot of money. Like here in Australia, that could be anything, you know, the minimum that's going to cost you is about $20. And if it's a $20 product, is it really worth it? Just send me a photo. I can see it's broken. I'll send a replacement out to the customer. Um, or or they maybe, maybe they've replaced the customer and, and I will ship you that replacement with your next order. Exactly. That's even better because then we're <laughs> not getting the shipping. So just think about these things because shipping is one of my biggest bugbears. You can control it with volume, but at the end of the day, you are at the mercy of somebody else and that is pure profit. You, you can't change what that shipping cost is. You can get economies of scale, if, you, you know, if you're sending a lot of parcels out, you can get a reduced rate. But at the end of the day, you have more control over the cost of your product because if you order more units of that, we can get the product down. If we change the lid, maybe we can save an extra two cents. And never underestimate the power of a penny. You know, one penny saving on 10,000 units is what, $1,000. That, that's all gone back in your pocket. So really getting your head as a product creator or a manufacturer that not to cut things to the bare bones, but to really appreciate what each input of the product is from the packaging, the printing, the bottle, the dropper, you know, the lid, all these kinds of things. If you can just save a penny on each one of those, maybe you've got five cents on every single unit. And that five cents adds up, guys. <laughs> I know the perfect story for that. The airline, Air Canada, it's one of the biggest mm -hmm. Canadian airlines. It's actually really big internationally as well. But uh, the meals that they served in every flight that was over four hours, every meal contained two black olives in that little dish. By removing the black olives, they had a savings of about 10 million per year. It's so scale. It, it's scale. That's it's scale. And you have to think about that because don't think small. So I, you will never hear me say the word small business because I don't believe that there's any small in business. If you want to think small, you will stay small. So have that concept in your head when you go into it. And even knowing, um, I don't know, maybe think you're on Shark Tank or something. This is what my current cost of goods are now. If I can get to 5,000 units, ask your supplier, what is it going to cost me at 5,000 units? What's it going to cost me at 10,000 units? What's it going to cost me at 20,000 units? Because then you can at least, maybe you're prepared to take a little bit less margin now, knowing that if you get... 20 stores on board, you will make that up quite easily by going to the next level. So really understanding every single piece of money that goes into your product. So many people forget, we call it the landed cost, right? It's the cost to get it ready for shipping. <laughs> um, yeah, we forget the, the tariffs that we have to pay, the taxes, the, the shipping from the warehouse to our door if you're doing it from home or the shipping from the warehouse to the 3PL. You forget all of that and you you can't because every single penny counts when you're at scale. 
Selena, we're coming up on time. And before I let you go, I want to ask you if there's a book, something that you really like. So I think one of the one of the best books that ever got me through was um, you know coming from the classics. It's Seth Godin's The Dip, The Cliff. I think it's just called The Dip, but in it he has three scenarios. You're at the dip, the cliff, or the roundabout. I can't remember what the last one is, but he tells you that there will always be dips in a business business journey. But it's understanding if you're in a dip or if you're at the cliff you know, the clip ready to jump off, throw it all away. So it's a really easy read. Um, I don't know, maybe like 100 pages. You can read it in a couple of hours. I think if you are ever at a low point in your business, it's a really great book to kind of really get you thinking about where you're at and what you want from your business. And he does a really good job of saying, if you're, if you're experiencing these things, you're just in a dip. And it's going to happen. If you're in business for any length of time, you're going to have a dip. But if you're at the cliff, you know, that's different. This is the point where you have to decide to make it or break it. They're the two. I can't remember what the third one is. So I think it might have been the roundabout. But to me, though, those were always the two bits that I took away from the book was just trying to work out, like, I opened my business in the middle of the GFC. So the whole world was in mass economic depression. I don't recommend it. <laughs> um, but, you know, we want to, want to be very, very successful. But I think whenever I got to those low points, it was always, I always came back to those two parts of his book going, do I chuck it in or do we just have to ride this out and what do we have to do to make it better? And, of course, it was always a dip <laughs> yeah. until I got to the point where it was the cliff and the cliff was the, the that we never really talked about that, but the cliff was the point where uh, my staff actually used to say to me, why do you come to work every day? Because I'd go in my office, I'd be, I'd be there early, I'd stay late. And one of my girls said to me one day, you're just bored. Like, what are you doing here? You don't do anything other than hassle the customers, you know, because you come out and have a chat or play on Facebook. And I was like, no, I am really busy. And she's like, no, you aren't. <laughs> Honestly, you don't need to be here. And I think it was about four weeks later I ended up putting the business on the market because it was at that point I realised I just didn't know what else to do with myself. Like I got this business to the point where it was fully processed. If things changed, I'd get an email saying, hey, just to let you know that the point of sale got updated. It's okay. I've updated the process book. <laughs> what am I doing here? <laughs> so, yeah, it's. I think that the cliff became for me when... I didn't feel like you know, I could have taken that even further, but I'd lost, I'd lost the thing. Once it, once it occurred to me, I was selling baby stuff and my kid was, I don't know, seven or something. I was just out of that headspace. The challenge for me was the building of the business and I kind of got it. You know, I could have gone to the next level to scale, but I decided I was actually really good at helping other people make money. So I sold the business and now that's what I do. <laughs> Great stuff. So Selena, for the people that want to find you and hear more about you, where do they go? Okay, so I am just at selenanight.com. Now, I am S-A-L-E-N-A, -E not like Selena Gomez. People call me Sal, and the reason they call me Sal is because there's an A, and I'm going to pop that free guide for you over at selenanight.com forward slash product. So if you awesome. want this all written down, um, it's kind of about eight or nine pages, but it's all literally stepped out for you. Follow those those steps, and I'm pretty confident that you will get yourself into some product, into, get some of your products into some stores. 
Very good. I'll have that on the show notes. And for everybody listening, Selena also has a podcast. And pretty soon you should be reaching a million downloads. Yeah, and I'm pretty excited. I don't know when this is going to go live, but Neil Patel just agreed to come on my show. So I'm very, very excited. It's called Bringing Business to Retail. So it's just, it's it's just, it's business strategies for retailers. So if you're e-commerce, if you're online, Etsy, Amazon, all those kinds of things, we don't delve into any of those specifically, but we talk about things like this. How do you get your product into stores? We talk a lot about mindset. We talk a lot about, um, you know, what it takes to move to the next level. So it doesn't matter where you're at, whether you're turning over $2,000 a year or $20 million a year, I think we can always learn more from other people who've been there, done that, have had a different experience. And if you, you, know, if you want to listen, you've got Quinn's podcast or you can come and listen to Bringing Business to Retail. It's on all the good places. Very good, Selena. And I will be listening for sure because I, I really love Neil Patel and uh, I'm jealous that you're going to have him. <laughs> I'm very, very excited. <laughs> Yeah, no kidding. <laughs> Thank you so much for having me. And guys, if you have any problems, you know, if you have any problems or issues getting your products into stores, feel free to reach out. If you head over to the website, there's a great big contact thing. Send me an email and we can see if we can help you. Thank you so much for being here with us today, Selena. Thanks for having me. And that's it for our interview, episode 176. That's it for today. If you enjoyed it, please go to iTunes, Stitcher, wherever it is that you're listening Go and leave me a review for the show because it does help me. If you want to contact me, go to qasellingonline.com, qasellingonline.com. And if you want to talk to Selena, you can also go to my contact form. Let me know and I can get her in touch with you or get you in touch with her. So thank you very much for listening and have an amazing day. Remember, start grateful, stay positive, and always profit. Have a good one.